Welcome, everyone. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented by the International Disciple-Making Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. I encourage you to learn more about the amazing work that we're doing all around the world. You can follow all the links from our webpage, breadoflifeboise.org. There you'll also learn about our Missions Church Fellowship here in Boise, Idaho, and it's from that fellowship that we share God's Word with you today. The Bible teaches us that the idolater is revealed by who and what he obeys and by what is giving shape to his life. God calls us back from our idolatry to choose that he will be God in our life. And in this call, God condescendingly demonstrates to us the wisdom of turning from idols to him alone. Well, a bit of a review from our last message. You'll remember that idolatry has spread throughout Israel, and it has come through the doorway of the people's disobedience to God. This idolatry is to such an extent now that their God is basically the God of Baal. When Elijah is standing before the people at Carmel and he's confronting them in their sins, he doesn't just invite the prophets of Baal to pray to their God Baal. He invites all the people of Israel. You pray to your God. You pray to Baal. I'll pray to my God, the Lord God of Israel. They have totally given themselves over to idolatry. It's also demonstrated by the fact that the, the altar that is been used or is used by the priest of Baal to make sacrifices Mount Carmel to Baal is intact and it's there and it's ready to go. But the altar that was used by some faithful individuals to bring sacrifices before God in that place had been broken down and it had to be rebuilt. Their sin has come to them or their own disobedience to God has led them into this idolatry It's entered where their wills were confronted with God's will and they deny God and they embrace their will, their desires. What we said the last time we spoke on this topic is that the first step into idolatry is when you put yourself and your will before God. The very first commandment in the Ten Commandments that God gives us is that we're to have no other gods before him. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the first God that an individual always puts before the Lord God is himself. The first God that you always put before God, when you have other gods before God, is you put yourself there, your own will, your own desire. And when you're completely committed to living for yourself in your own way and according to your own desires, then you begin to fashion idols that you can project your own desires upon and your own willful attitudes upon, and that's how idolatry gets shaped. And once you've done, then you gather around these idols that you fabricated in order to consolidate your own desire to live for yourself and according to your own pleasing, and you think it's you and this idol you've constructed, but what you don't understand is when you do this and when you live in disobedience this way, Satan comes and accompanies you in that place. And he joins around those idols and he expresses his power in those places. Basically, I put it this way, you don't obey in a vacuum. When you obey God and you yield to him, God is there. And you don't rebel in a vacuum either. When you turn against God and you resist him and you turn your will against God and you rebel against him, Satan, the chief rebel of all time, gathers around your rebellion to give you encouragement and support and even energize you in that act. You can know that you're slipping into idolatry based on who you obey. If you are living in a regular state of disobedience, it's likely that there is an idol in your life. That's what we said. Another thing we said is this, that you can know that you're living in an idolatrous state by what is shaping your character. 
your life. What you worship, what you bow before, what you serve will shape who you are. And so the question is, what is shaping your life? What's defining your character? That's what we spoke about this last time. Idolatry is this mix of your imaginations combined with your desire or will to live independent of God. And out of that, idols are formed. And the way back from idolatry is to activate your wills against that thing and against yourself and to choose instead that God will be God in your life. And God calls for that choice because God is a jealous God. He wants it to be you directly before Him. And He wants to be the one shaping and molding the character of your life. He wants to be the one you are worshiping and bowing before and serving. And so here the nation of Israel has been brought to Mount Carmel where there is now a test that's going to take place that God wonderfully interjects into this situation where they can, through their reason and through their need, be brought back to Him. God will demonstrate that He is the one who meets the great need in their life and the great calculations, the deep calculations of their life. And He provides the answer that no one else and nothing else can provide. And so we're going to look at how God provides a test for us to turn our wills back to Him. We go away from God by our own energies and by our own desires, and yet God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Here, let me give you a reasonable test that will answer the deep needs of your life in order to turn you back from your idolatry and your self-willing ways to bow and submit yourself completely and totally to me. He poses a test that will involve a prayer, a sacrifice, and fire, and the elements of these tests will expose the complete insufficiency of Baal or whatever idol you've constructed for your life, and at the same time it will demonstrate the utter sufficiency of the God of the Bible. The test involves prayer, the sacrifice, and fire. We'll look at this in just a moment. So here are these priests that are gathered together and all the people that are gathered together at Mount Carmel. Elijah goes out to speak to them all at once, he lays this challenge before them. You establish your altar. You take a bowl. You choose whichever bowl you want of the two. You put it out on the altar that you have to Baal. Now all of you pray. Just don't put any fire on this altar. And the God who sins receiving fire to receive the sacrifice will be the God. That is God and the God of Israel. And so here's the test. The, the prophets are 450 of them. And they can't walk away from this test now that it's been made known. It's been made known to all the people. They get to pick the prime bowl as well. And can you imagine if 450 said, you know, we're not going to subject ourselves to that test. They're kind of in a little bit of a trap. I'm guessing they might be a little bit nervous in the trap that's been set. But there it is before them. And they begin their prayers. And they begin to cry out. And they cry out all day long. And Elijah's sitting on a pile of stones, probably the altar that's already been torn down to God. And he's mocking them the whole time. Maybe, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe you just need to cry louder and wake him up. And they are suffering at the expense of his sarcasm, but they're going to pay even more later on in the day as the day goes on. That's not the worst that they're going to experience in this encounter. There's a little abuse from, verbal abuse from Elijah. They're cutting themselves and they're pleading with Baal until absolutely bled out. They collapse in utter fatigue and... No God answers. No prayer is heard. No fire falls. 
Elijah then rebuilds the altar of God. He takes each one of the stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He points out that these stones reflect the fact that it's God who gave them their name, Israel. You shall be called Israel, a prince with God. He forms, he's demonstrating by repairing it that they have neglected and abandoned their worship of God. He's demonstrating to them that Baal didn't name them. They don't have their identity from Baal. They have their identity from the God of this broken down altar where they refuse to worship him. He's the one who defines who you are. He's the one who defines what people you are. And he reconstructs it. He slays the bull. He lays the bull out upon the altar. He has water poured over it three times. At the time of the evening sacrifice, at the very moment at which in Jerusalem, at that moment, the evening sacrifice is being offered up by the priest of God, Elijah prays. God demonstrate that all that I've done here has been at your word and that you are the God of Israel. And just as fire fell when the tabernacle was dedicated by Moses in the wilderness, and just as fire fell in the temple that was dedicated by Solomon, fire falls and receives the sacrifice from heaven. A test of prayer and sacrifice and receiving fire. Let's look at them. Let's look at them one at a time. First, prayer. He says, you call on the name of your gods. I remember the first time that I was in Taiwan, I was taken by a missionary friend of mine who I'd gone to college with, and he took me down to the major temple that was in the city of Taipei, and there around the block were people holding tennis shoes and shirts and pieces of cloth and mothers carrying their babies, and there at the temple were places where they offered sacrifices and they laid down money before the Buddhist temple and there there were Buddhist priests who prayed over them and I asked them what was taking place. He says, well, here they're making whatever sacrifice they can muster up and then they're bringing their children in this place and they're seeking a blessing from the blessing from the Buddhist priests. They're quite superstitious and they want their lives to be as good as possible and they want things to go as easy as possible and want their children to do well in school or whatever it is. So they're bringing some kind of payment and they're seeking some kind of blessing. And It just illustrates that everyone everywhere prays. Prayer is not something limited to the lips of good Christian men and women or to those who claim faith in the God of the Bible. Every person hopes that there's someone or something transcendent out there listening and waiting to respond. I was in Calock City a year after the tsunami had swept into Calock City. I was in a hotel that had been flooded by the tsunami. I was with the owner of the hotel. We were speaking together and talking. I asked him whether he believed in God, and he said, no, we Buddhists don't believe in God. We're atheists. We don't really believe that there's any such thing as God. I said, well, that's kind of interesting because when I was back home a year ago watching the story of people who survived the tsunami and watching different Thai people being interviewed, when they were asked what they did when they saw the waves coming upon them, almost every single one of them said they prayed. Who were they praying to if you don't believe in God? And he said, well, you know, maybe there was a Buddhist priest on the beach with them, and they were crying out to a Buddhist priest on the beach with them, in which case I smiled at him, kind of chuckled. He kind of got a smile on his face as well because he knew that wasn't a really honest answer. He said, I don't think there was any Buddhist priest around. I think they were running for the trees just like everybody else. You know what I think? I said, I think that when we come into moments of great catastrophe and when we come into a moment of profound need, we instinctively cry out to a God who made us 
seeking that he would deliver us. His answer was, well, I have to admit to you that in moments of crisis in my life, when I've not had an answer for myself, I found myself crying out to some unknown spirit, some powerful spirit to deliver me. I said, well, there you go. It just demonstrates that deep down inside, the God who's made you is left imprinted upon you an understanding that there is a God who knows you, that's personal and can hear you, and it's powerful enough to deliver you. That's why you pray. The test of prayer is a test for a transcendent and powerful personality who will answer. Is there someone out there listening to me and ready to respond to my needs? Is there someone who cares about my plight and my sorrows and someone that I can confide in? Is there someone out there who can listen and respond to my cries, personal enough to hear me, powerful enough to provide? The answer to these questions from this test is that there is one who is a prayer answering God. There's one who says in Jeremiah 33, call upon me and I'll answer thee and I'll show you great and mighty things which you know not. I'm ready to answer you. It's to his redeemed people, by the way, that God has made this promise to hear and to answer. To those who pray by faith in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, ask anything in my name. It'll be answered for you. Praying through their relationship with their Savior who is the mediator for them between them and God. Jesus presents us before the Father and the Father hears us because the Father does not turn away His Son. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. Go to traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.